Lord, I thank you that your ancient words tell us that you are the lifter of our heads. That you lift up our heads so that you can look us full in our face. And that you can speak your words to us. Your love to us, your will for us. And so, Lord, as we approach your word, would you lift our heads to hear you? And would we hear that which is from you? In our heads and deep, deep in our hearts, in the deepest places. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we have begun a journey, and it's a journey of identity, learning who we are, who the Lord has made us to be, and all the good things that he has for us and the things that he says about us. And so we started by hearing about Gideon, this mighty man of valor that looked at the Lord and said, hold on, that is not me. And the Lord showed him that Gideon was who God says he was, not who Gideon thought that he was. And then last week we looked at the children of Israel and the freedom that the Lord gave them as he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And so this morning we're actually going to pick up with those children of Israel. And we're going to pick up with them in Exodus chapter 17. 17, I'm going to need a page number when you get there. So the children of Israel, sorry, 112 says Peter, thank you. Page 112. So the children of Israel, um, they've been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea. The Lord has already blessed them with manna and quail from heaven, and they're wandering in the desert. And so we're going to read Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and a water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and the place he called Massa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. So 
So when I was a teenager, maybe 14 or 15, just starting high school, my family started doing foster care for the state of Iowa. So my my parents had to go and take classes, and we had several social workers come and inspect our homes to make sure that we were a safe place for children who needed a safe place to be, could go. So we took our home office, and we replaced the big desk in there with a crib, and we filled the closet in there that had office supplies in it with clothes and diapers and things for children of all shapes and sizes and ages. And every so often I'd come home off the school bus and there would be a red SUV parked in our driveway with a a nice little Iowa state stamp on it. And I knew that if that red SUV was in my driveway, there was probably a scared little face sitting by the kitchen table or in my living room. And it was almost always the case that the children who I saw lifted out of the back seat of that red SUV had gone through a great deal of trauma. In the short years that they'd been on this earth, they'd experienced a great deal of pain. Some of them came to us with cuts and with bruises. Others came with lice and with scabies. Some of them came with wild, angry, dark eyes, and some came with vacant, empty, lost eyes. And still others came with scared, sad eyes, looking for hope. And I remember even at 14 and 15 how hard it was to accomplish the simplest of tasks and the most normal of life processes with some of my foster siblings. Things like being buckled into a car seat or even like set into a high chair for a meal could launch my home into mass chaos, screaming and crying fits because some children have learned that to be contained is to be in danger, that to be stuck is to not be safe. I even remember a little boy, he was two years old, and this little boy had no idea how to be picked up. Like, you know when you put your arms down to pick up a toddler and they kind of buckle down and they wait for you to pick them up? He would, like, flap his arms in the air like a noodle and look at you just terrified. Like, he just had no idea what it was to trust a person to pick him up. Other things, like eating a meal at the table could also create chaos because for a child who had gone without food, it's very hard to eat food slowly. It's hard to eat at appropriate times and it's hard to leave or to eat the food on your plate and to not try to hide it, to keep it for later. Sometimes it seemed that no matter what toys were put in the toy box or what food was put on the table, whatever safety and love that we tried to pour out for them, no matter what we did, some kids just had no idea how to receive love. We poured and we poured and we poured and they cried and they cried and they cried. Like the children of Israel in our text for this morning, already at such a young age and because of the hardship of their lives, many of these children had begun to believe some pretty profound lies about themselves. They'd begun to believe that they were not worthy of having their basic needs met. They'd begun to believe that they were destined to be rejected, to be neglected, and to be abused. And they'd begun to believe that they were absolutely, entirely, and inherently unworthy of being loved. And because they believed that they were unworthy of love, they were unable and unwilling to receive it. 
In our text for this morning, we catch up with the children of Israel not long after they'd been lifted out of the Red Sea. After hundreds of years of oppression and of slavery in Egypt, years of forced labor, of violence, abuse, humiliation, and even the mass murder of all of their male children, God had heard their cries. And he'd raised up Moses to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh, and he'd shown his mighty force in the plagues that decimated the land of Egypt. He'd softened Pharaoh's heart, and he'd marched his children right out of town in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. All with the wealth of Egypt, their riches, their gold strapped to their backs. And to add some icing to this astoundingly sweet cake, he had split that Red Sea wide open. A sea, wide, like we say this all the time, just think about this, like a sea, wide open. And he led his children out on dry ground, and he decimated their enemy with a sweep of his hand in the crash of the waves. And as if this weren't enough, when his people were hungry, he had literally rained down bread and meat from heaven. Showed up in the morning, just came from the heavens. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And God had kept his end of the bargain. And yet somehow, those children in the wilderness, they just didn't get it. For hundreds of years, they lived in trauma, and for hundreds of years, they'd been living into the lies that trauma and hardship had told them about themselves. We are the ones who get rejected. We're the ones who go hungry. We're the ones who never, ever have enough. We're the ones whose lives don't matter. We're slaves. We will never be more than slaves. We're not worthy of anyone's time. We're not worthy of anyone's attention. And we are certainly not worthy of anyone's love. This is all they'd known to be true about themselves for as long as they could remember. And so when the water runs out, instead of remembering the way that the Lord had saved them out of Egypt, instead of remembering that massive sea split in two, instead of asking the Lord who rained down manna and quail from heaven to help them, instead of trusting that God was their God and they were his people, they began to quarrel with Moses. Why'd you take us out here, Moses? Why did you take us out of Egypt if you were just going to let us die out here anyway? Hey, Moses, we might not be in Egypt anymore, but we're still slaves. We're still rejected. We're still the ones who never have enough. We're still the thirsty ones. So why did you take us out of Egypt? Despite all the love that the Lord had poured out, Despite that covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. Despite it all, somewhere deep inside, they are not God's chosen people. They are not delivered. They are not beloved. They are slaves of Egypt. And they are destined for rejection, for neglect, for abuse, for death. And they are destined to never know love. Now, I've never been forced into manual labor. And I was born into a family that loved the Lord and loved me to the best of their abilities. But as much as I hate to admit it, I do know what it is to feel unworthy of time and unworthy of attention and unworthy of love. 
When I was about eight years old, my family moved from super rural Midwest, Southwest Minnesota to the busting metropolis of Borculo, Michigan. This was, this was a metropolis for me. Okay. We'd left a small town where I'd known every resident. I'd spent my days riding my bike to the park and building forts in the creek and playing dolls and dress up with my friends and my cousins who all lived within like a three mile radius. It was like a campground. That was a town. And we came to a big empty house on the busy intersection of 96th Avenue in Port Sheldon. There was no park. There was no creek. And there were no friends. We'd moved because my parents had been called by the Lord into ministry. For four years, my dad would attend Calvin Seminary, and he'd serve as an intern pastor at the church next door. And my mom took a full-time job to make sure that we could go to school, that dad could go to school, and that our ends would be met. Both my parents were out of the house in the morning by 6 o'clock, and they were home just in time for supper. I had two older brothers, but it was all hands on deck, and they got jobs at greenhouses, and so they were gone from sunup to sundown. My whole world was wrecked. At eight years old, it was my responsibility to set an alarm and to get up. It was my job to get to the bus. When I got home, it was my job to do the homework and make sure all that got done. My mom would set out like a recipe book and put like a little asterisk by the one I was supposed to do. And she'd set out the food from the cupboard that I would need and I would make dinner. And it was my job to make sure that there was something at least in the oven and hopefully on the table by the time everyone made it in the door. When it came time to sign up for sports camps or to try out for different activities, I chose to opt out. I didn't even ask because I knew that my parents had enough on their plates. They didn't need to shell out extra money. They didn't have time to drive me to practice. They didn't have extra energy to help me with my free throw shot or my jump serve. That was really terrible. I was the responsible one. I was the one who could put my needs and the desires that I had aside for my family. And I was the one who didn't need extra time. I didn't need extra attention. I didn't need to be celebrated. And I didn't need any kind of fanfare. I wasn't special. I wasn't an amazing athlete. And I didn't have a solo voice. And I wasn't really sure what I was good at anyway. So I poured all my energy and my attention into never messing up a meal. I always had to get good grades. I had to do everything right because I couldn't be a problem. I couldn't be an inconvenience. And as the four years rolled by, the lies started to sink in deeper. I'm not special. I'm not really good at anything worthwhile. Not worth anyone's time, energy, or money. And I'm not worth investment. I'm not the kid that gets cheered for on the bleachers. And eventually, what lies behind all those little lies is the big fat lie. I am not worthy of being loved. I'm only worth that which I can earn. I spent my whole life singing Jesus Loves Me. I think I learned it at like two, maybe younger. And up until a few short years, I honestly thought that I believed those words. I knew them. I could sing them. I had no idea that my spirit deep inside, eight-year-old little me, refused to believe what my head had said again and again and again and again. 
It's hard to see how these events have shaped my thought patterns. It's really hard to see how this belief of not being loved has impacted me throughout my life. Like my foster siblings and like the children of Israel, for a long time I've deeply struggled to receive love. It's been nearly impossible for me to receive affirmation, like compliments make me want to crawl under a table and die. Like I don't, I don't know what to do with them. I'm getting better at it, but it's been such a process. Much like Gideon, people would say nice things to me and I would go like, no. <laughs> if you knew me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. It's not true. I'm not what you think I am. I was deeply uncomfortable about ever being celebrated. Like if people would ask me what I wanted to do for my birthday, I didn't have an answer. Like I don't, I don't know how to be celebrated. Like I don't know what to tell you. I've struggled to name and admit and voice my own needs. And I've struggled to believe that others could actually love me and I've actually caught myself trying to earn their love. Like if I have any indication that my husband is not feeling what I would like him to be feeling, like I I compulsively need to cook or bake. Like, love me, love me, right? Like it's in there. I'm coming along, y'all. I'm coming along. (laughs) But it all stems from that big lie that I'm not worthy of time or attention. I'm not worthy of being loved. I've got to earn this somehow. Now everyone's story looks a little bit different. We've all got different stories, and the lies that you hear in your spirit might sound a lot different from mine. But I don't think that I'm the only one here who struggled to feel worthy of love. See, it's one of the Lord's main goals for your life that you know that you are relentlessly and inherently loved. And so you better believe that it's the goal of his sworn enemy and our sworn enemy to undo that and to make you not believe it. And so he comes in and he lays the foundation for that lie of not being loved with bricks of lies like, I'm the abandoned one. I'm the forgotten one. I'm the one who gets left out. I'm the failure. I'm the mistake. I'm the bad one. I'm the quitter. I'm the disappointment. I'm the sinner. I don't hear from the Lord. I'm never going to get rid of this pain. I will never succeed. I will never be enough. And no one would ever love me. Here's the thing. What we believe about ourselves way deep down has a direct impact into how we live our lives and into the things that we're able to receive and to walk into. If we believe that we're not worthy of being loved, if we believe that we are not loved, then it is impossible for us to receive it. It's impossible for us to truly believe the good things that the Lord says about us and to hear about the plans that he has for us. If what God says to us feels inconsistent with what we've experienced then we refuse to believe it. We might agree with it in our heads. We can sing it all day long. Somewhere deep inside, we rebel. It would be as if I told you every single day that the sky was purple when you knew, in fact, that the sky is blue. You might say, okay, the sky is purple, but deep inside you're going, lady, the sky is blue. It's not true. 
How can you say that I'm loved when I've never experienced the reality of being truly and perfectly loved? How can you tell me that I'm worthy of being loved when no one else has ever thought that? This is precisely Israel's predicament. But you know what? God doesn't leave them in Egypt. And he doesn't leave them to die in the desert. No. In the Lord's infinite grace and goodness and wisdom and sovereignty and his relentless love, God leads his people into the wilderness. It feels illogical, doesn't it? Like, how is the desert wilderness going to convince a nation of slaves that they're no longer slaves? How is the heat and the drought and the hunger and the thirst going to convince a scorned and abandoned nation that they are chosen, dearly loved people? See, the deal is God knows his people. He knows them. He knows who they were in Egypt. He knows who they are in this desert. And he knows who they'll be in the promised land. He knows who they think they are and he knows who he made them to be. And he knows all the things about them that are too bad for them to face and all the things that are too good for them to realize. And the thing about the wilderness, it has a pesky way of bringing out the worst in people. The wilderness bubbles up all kinds of icky stuff that people have inside. Have you ever been camping? Tents? Rain? Bugs, large creatures. It brings it out, doesn't it? The impatience, the fear, the doubt, the anger, the bitterness. You got families fighting. I can see a few people. They can feel me on that. Okay. And so for 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness as the Lord literally weeded out the lies and replaced them with his truth. When the water dries up and they start to live out of the lie that they are not worthy of being cared for. When the fear bubbles to the top and it comes out in impatience and doubt and bitterness and entitlement and grumbling and complaining. The Lord washes it away with water that springs out of a rock. I will be your God and you are my people. And the food starts to run out and the people start to live out of the lie that they're the abandoned ones, the ones whose lives don't matter. He does it again. Bread and meat from heaven. I am the Lord, your God. I will meet your needs. You are my people. God took them into the wilderness to shed them of who they thought they were so that they could walk into who he made them to be. His chosen people, a mighty nation set apart for the salvation of the entire world. This is the line that would produce David and Solomon and eventually Jesus Christ himself. These aren't slaves. They're conquerors. They are kings. They are dearly loved children of the God of the universe. And they are the ambassadors that birthed his kingdom into this planet. They just needed to know it. In the deepest places in order to walk into it. They needed to face the pain of who they, of what they had been through and who they thought they were. And they needed to be shown the truth of who they were and the love that God had for them so that they could be a testament of that love to the whole world. 
As the Lord spoke about his holy nation through the prophet Hosea when he said, Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Just as the Lord poured water out of a rock for his children in the desert and just as he led them out there to speak tenderly to them about who he was and who they were and what their relationship was to be. The Lord speaks tenderly to us about who we are to him too. I wasn't planning on ending this way, um, but as I've said to you before, to preach a sermon is to embody a sermon. This I'm learning, and so I've been living into this one in a variety of ways this week. But yesterday is what really stands out. And so I went to this conference yesterday. It's called Pebbles and Stones. And it was a conference about children's worship and how to lead people into the presence of the Lord, and children especially. Um, it was really, really beautiful, fun, and sweet day. And towards the end of the seminar, the woman who was leading the, this conference, she led us through an actual lesson that she had planned and prepared to teach for children. So she was modeling that which she was teaching. And so she began her lesson by telling the story of Genesis chapter 1, and especially the part where God made Adam in his very own image. And so as she spoke about how the Lord had gathered the dust of the earth into his hands to make man, she began to roll this ball of clay in her hands. She began to shape a man. And she spoke about the eyes that she had given Adam, eyes for him to see and enjoy his creation, and also eyes for him to see God to see his face. And she gave this man a nose and she spoke about the sweet fragrance of the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And she gave this little man a clay mouth with which Adam was to name every creature in that paradise. And as she finished forming that little clay man with all of his fingers and all of his toes, she held his little body safe and secure in his hands, in her hands. She drew it really close to her face. And she looked at him with sheer delight. And she blew life into him. Just as God breathed life into Adam. And the Lord began to speak tenderly to me. I formed you too. I chose the color of your hair and the angle of your nose. I gave you that tender heart and that strong will. And I chose every bit and piece of you and I molded you together with love. I see what I've created. I see you. And you are very good. And as he washed over me with his truth and with his love, I began to believe it. I'm a mess. Yeah. To believe it in a deeper place than I'd ever known before. It's not just in here anymore. Just as the Lord spoke tenderly to Israel, and just as he spoke tenderly to me, I believe he has tender words for each of us this morning. So as we come to, his, to a close, I want to read some words over us all. I'm going to try to read words. 
over us all in their words from David, the psalmist, about who the God who knows us says that we are. Words about the truth of who we are and how known and how loved we are. And when I finish reading, when we finish reading together, we're going to listen to a song. And so we're going to hear the words of the Lord, and then as the song is played, I just want to invite us all to let the words wash over us, to hear what the Lord has to say in them. And so I don't know if you want to close your eyes or bow your heads, whatever you need to do to receive. I'm going to read to us from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me and your hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works I am your work. They're wonderful. And I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Amen. I just want to invite you to stay in this posture and to hear these words sung over you.